It is becoming more and more difficult to bring the gospel to those who need it around us. Our nation has divided into many different fragments, many groups that are here and here and here that are disconnected from each other and unwilling to listen to each other. You might have one group over here, uh, let's say the old school Republicans over here and the old school Democrats over here and then the new Republicans over here and the new Democrats over there, but that's not even the beginning of it. Then you have the libertarians and you have the socialists and you have the hippies and you have the Black Lives Matter movement and Blue Lives Matter over here and then over here you might have All Lives Matter and then you know a big conglomeracy by the time we are done counting them up of groups that largely take influence from other people within their own group. And largely we are unwilling to listen to those outside of our group. And so we get into this situation where all we are hearing are more and more of the same things that we already believe. We become more and more deeply entrenched into our own beliefs and suddenly the many groups are so far apart from each other. And suddenly there is great and deep mistrust between the groups. You might be part of one group and you meet somebody from the other group and just naturally don't trust them and think that they must be out to get America and their vision for the country is so bad and the things they want to do to the world are so bad. And then in the midst of all of that, you have the church. And the question I want to ask is how can the church deliver the gospel to all of those groups, all of those nations within a nation, tribes within a nation, you might say? when there are social barriers that would prevent us from even coming into contact with them, right? Because they're doing their thing and we're doing our thing. And if we were by chance to overcome those social barriers and run into someone who is in desperate need of the gospel, there's a natural mistrust there that would make it very difficult to bring the gospel to them. The question I want to ask this morning is how can we overcome that? How can we still be faithful to deliver the gospel to the many nations within our nation when there is so much resentment between all of the tribes? How do we overcome that hurdle? Well, the short answer is that we continue to deliver the gospel by obeying Jesus, by doing what he says. And what we will find in this morning's pair of stories that we are looking at is one of the commands of Jesus, one way that Christians are to live, that if we were to obey it, we would find much more opportunity to bring the gospel to those in need. We would break down many of these barriers. Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 18? We're going to read the first paragraph of chapter 18 and then the first paragraph of chapter 19. We've been walking through these two chapters for the last few weeks. This is the story that ends with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the whole thing is building up to that. You're waiting for that the whole time. I hope to preach on that when I return in three weeks from today, but for now we are going to pause and we're going to look at one more thing that leads up to it. That is a very Christian tendency that both Abraham and Lot display. From that, we're going to take example on how we should live our lives. Let's read the first paragraph of Genesis 18 together. The Lord says, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth, and he said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, 
do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you've come to your servant. And so they said, do, of you, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three stays of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and he took a calf tender and good and he gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now we move to chapter 19 where we read the first paragraph, the first three verses. To the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And he said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, that you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, and so they turned aside to him, and they entered his house. And he made a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. The words of the Lord. <clears throat> we have here a picture of the warm welcome that Christians today are to show those who are outside of their circle. And with it comes a fun reminder that you never know who those strangers are really are. The stories, as I have said many weeks for the past weeks, the stories of Scripture bring to life the principles of Scripture. If you find a principle being taught in a story brought to life, there's a very good chance you can find that same principle clearly stated somewhere else in the Bible, for the Bible speaks both clearly and beautifully and real to life. And in this case, we have a verse in the New Testament that tells us exactly, in no uncertain terms, what these two stories are to teach us. If you would, flip over to Hebrews 13, verse 2, and we'll read what it says there. Hebrews 13, 2, this is the principle that is taught by the two stories we just read. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Do you see the connection? Abraham sees three men coming. He thinks they are just men. He shows a warm welcome to them. But he learns later that these three men are actually not men at all, but they are two angels and the Lord himself. Lot does a similar thing. He welcomes the two angels, although the Lord is not there on that journey. He welcomes the two angels into his house, gives them a great warning, and then finds out later that these two men were not men at all, but they were angels. Thereby, some have entertained angels unaware. And so we see the commandment, the principle taught clearly. Remember to do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. We have then an example of the sort of hospitality that we are to show. So let's examine the example that they give us and see if it can't teach us anything about the kind of welcome that we are to give to strangers. I'll walk through some details with you in Abraham's story here, the hospitality he shows, and then we'll look more quickly at Lot and how he echoes the same thing. If you flip back to Genesis 18, 
You see a lot of details in the story here, a lot of imagery coming forth. You can almost picture it. First, you can see how much running this man does. In verse 2, you see that he runs to greet them. As soon as he's able to see them, right? So they are however far the eyes can see. He sees them coming over, maybe the next hill or dune or something, and he begins running to greet them, presumably a very long distance. Now, Abraham is a hundred years old. I am in my late 30s, and I do not feel like running to greet anyone. Some of you are older than I am, but not quite a hundred, and could hardly imagine running to greet someone. Abraham, at a hundred years old, runs this long distance to greet them, then runs back, and it says in verse 6 that he goes quickly to Sarah. So he is running and working as quickly as he can. And he tells her to do her work quickly as well. You can feel all the haste here, right? Now, Sarah is 90 years old, and she's given a large amount of flour and asked to work that flour into cakes and to do it as quickly as possible. You can imagine how frustrated she might feel in this moment. In verse 7, you see him run again. He runs to the herd. He brings a calf to a young man and tells that man to prepare it quickly. So you can just see just the busy bumblebee atmosphere on his property and in his house as soon as he sees his guests. It's like they go from, uh, from, from I don't know, slow mode, you could say, just into work mode, rest mode into work mode, like that. Boom, we have guests, boom, the operation commences. That's what's going on here. This is something like the way many of our houses are the day when we have guests coming over. There's commotion everywhere. This kid is cleaning that. This kid is cleaning that. This child is making this mess. And so then we have to go back and clean that. And there's so much food to prepare. And you always underestimate how much time it is going to take. It is so stressful. There is so much work to do. Well, that pattern of being abundantly busy and working with haste the day that the guests come has at least a 4,000-year-old precedent. If you are that way when you have guests coming over, you have a friend in Abraham and a friend in Sarah. Another detail we see is that the food he serves is over the top in amounts. You see a few details. In verse 5, he offers them a morsel of bread. That would be kind of like, hey, I have an extra peanut butter cracker. Would you like it? You know, a very small snack that he is offering to them. You meet somebody on the road, you've got peanut butter crackers in your car, you give one to them. That kind of thing that he offers them. Well, then in verse 6, he gives the three says of flour to Sarah. Uh, that's the equivalent of five gallons of flour. If you can imagine a five-gallon bucket of flour. And she is to knead all of that into cakes. I can't imagine how many cakes and how much bread will be coming out of that. Much more than three visitors can eat. In verse 7, he kills a whole calf for these three men. And then in verse 8, he grabs curds and milk too, perhaps some form of appetizer, perhaps a side. We're not sure how that is served. The milk then to refresh them so they can have something nice to drink as well. These travelers have presumably gone a long way. They need lots of nourishment, lots of calories, protein, fats, all of these things. And he gives it to them in abundance. And you can see in verse 8, by the fact that he stands beside them, and Sarah is back in the tent, we learn later, that this is not even for the five of them. This is just for the three guests. A whole calf, five gallons of flour worth of cakes, 
curds and milk just for these three guests to eat. That is over the top. That's more food than they need. And often we do the same thing when we welcome people into our homes, right? You know that it'll take two pizzas to feed however many people you have in your house, so you go ahead and order a third pizza. And it's not so much a just-in-case thing. It's because you want to have more food there than you need. That's part of hosting people. I can remember one time uh, I was part of a church that was having a leaders meeting, an elders meeting, and we would rotate these meetings between people's houses. So it'd be kind of like if we had deacons meeting in the deacons' homes and rotated homes here. Uh, And it was my turn to host, and so I love to grill, so I grilled a a large-sized chicken breast for every guy there. I love to grill chicken. Um, We did some mashed potatoes, some green beans, and a few other things, and uh, it was it was, I just, I remember it still. It was so good. That chicken came, sometimes it comes out great. Sometimes at this time it came out great. The mashed potatoes I think my wife made were awesome. Like the food was so good that these guys all like just threw it down. Like they ate so much and we had 13 guys there and I made 13 chicken breasts and there was not an extra one in the middle of the table and they all ate the entire thing and they ate all the mashed potatoes and they ate all the beans as well. And at first I was like, yes, they love it. It came out great. And then I realized there was no extra. And I don't know why. I mean, they all ate, they all were satisfied. They all laid back in their chairs and rubbed their belly like us guys do when we're full. And they were like, oh, that was good. And I was so embarrassed that there wasn't extra. I didn't know why I was embarrassed that there wasn't extra, but now I think perhaps I understand. It's just part of hospitality. Part of a feast is that you give them more than they need and there is some left over. That's part of welcoming people into your home oftentimes. Lastly, we see that he views himself and speaks of himself and he acts as a servant to these men. See this in several ways. In verse three, he calls them Lord. And he calls himself their servant. You would almost think that he already knows that this is God he's talking to by the way that he talks, but it hasn't been revealed to him yet. That's just the way that he talks to guests. In verse 18, he stands by them while they eat. Now, I used to work as a waiter, and I know something of that in a fancy restaurant. What a good waiter will do, a trained waiter, I should say, will do, is they'll give you what you need, and then they will stand just outside of your peripheral vision so that you don't notice they're there and they're a little bit, you know, they can't quite hear the conversation because they're far away. So you're not bothering them. But as soon as they look up and need something, their eyes will meet yours and you can be right there to meet their needs. We can picture Abraham standing there as they sit and eat just ready to meet their needs as if he were their waiter. Or perhaps standing there, you can imagine him standing there with a towel on his wrist just as a butler would in a time like that. He is acting as their waiter, as their servant, as he is serving them. Then in verse 16, we didn't read this today, but we did read it last week. When it's time for them to go on their journey, they have a ways to go, and he walks halfway with them and then comes back as an escort to keep them safe. He walked as much that day as they did when they left. All these things are ways of saying, I am here to serve you, I am your servant. So in the haste that he is working with, in the abundance he provides with them, and in the servitude he places himself under, he gives them a warm, over-the-top welcome. Can you imagine his surprise when he learns that these guests are actually angels and the Lord? Good thing he took good care of them, right? 
And that's the moral of the story. We see the same thing with Lot. We see him call them Lord. We see them talk about himself as their servant. We see him make a feast in the same way, but it's a small detail, right? It just says he threw them a feast. We don't get all the details. We see in verse 3 of chapter 19 that he made unleavened bread for them, which is what you make when you're in a hurry. So we can see there is haste there. There was abundance there, but, you know, it's not quite as clear. One thing that is different is that in his story, he meets them in the entrance to the town at the city gate. And this is where all of the business of town was done. If you had to trade, if you had a dispute that needed to be judged, if you wanted to do business, it was like the marketplace of the day. It was the, uh, the, the town square, you could say, the public arena. The leaders of the town would just sit there and uh, deal with whatever came up as the days went by. These strangers walk into the city gate, open in the public, and only one person rises to greet them, and it's Lot. Now, at this point, we know that if there are 10 righteous people in the city, the Lord will spare the city. And we have a hint here that perhaps there's only one. For there were all of the leaders, there's everyone in the town square, and only one man rises up to greet them. We have there also a reminder that hospitality often marks the righteous in the presence of the wicked. Here he is in a city of very wicked men. We will find out just how wicked in the following paragraph. And here he is, the only one who's standing up to greet them and to offer hospitality. We get a hint at how wicked the rest of the men are because in verse 2, he invites them into his house. They say no, and he's got to press them to say, no, you don't understand. You can't spend the night in the town square here. This is not a safe place. So we've got this stark contrast of Lot and everyone else in the city. And one thing that makes him very different is the hospitality that he shows. So in that the way, there are really two points. The command that we have to show hospitality, and then you never know who you might be showing it to when you have a stranger in your midst. And at the same time, the way that hospitality often marks the righteous in the presence of the wicked. We see this unfold more in the New Testament, particularly in 1 Timothy and in Titus, as Paul is giving some of his pupils instructions in how to discern church leadership well. What kind of people should he put in office in the church? Uh, How do we know if a widow who is coming for support is truly faithful to the cause of the gospel and hasn't just isn't up to no good or how do we know this well he gives a mark for discerning a faithful widow in first timothy chapter five and one of them is she's got a track record of showing hospitality to the saints and he also in both first timothy and in titus gives a number of criteria for elders which is another word for pastor and one of those criteria is he must show hospitality How do you know if a guy is the real deal, a guy aspiring to pastoral office is the real deal? Well, just check to see if he welcomes people into his home or not. How do you know if an older lady in the church who has lost her husband years ago, how do you know if she is the real deal? One of the ways, Paul says, does she open up her home to people? Because hospitality often marks the righteous, even in the presence of the wicked. We also see... The commands clearly a few times to show hospitality, command given to all Christians, not just pastors, not just the older among us. Romans 12, 13 just gives the command clearly. And 1 Peter 4, 9, interestingly, says to show hospitality 
without grumbling, it says. Which personally to me is a great comfort because sometimes when you're given five gallons of flour and asked to immediately make it into cakes, it can be a little frustrating. Sometimes when you're trying to get the house ready for guests, it can be aggravating and difficult and you can get stressed out. I see the Lord acknowledging that as he says to show hospitality without grumbling. He is saying there, you will be tempted to grumble as you show hospitality for it is indeed difficult and stressful work. But church, he says, to do it without grumbling. So I've said the word hospitality a lot. I haven't defined it for you. What, what is it? What is hospitality? I think the simplest way I could say it is that it is giving a warm welcome to people outside of your circle. Most of us give warm welcomes to people inside of our circle. To be hospitable is to give an equally warm welcome to those who are outside. It is to bring people who don't live in your house into your house. And then another level up from that, it is to bring people who don't normally come into your house because they're not part of your circle. It is to bring them into your home. It is to notice who your circle of friends are at work and extend a welcome to someone who is outside of that circle of friends at work. It is, as many of you do, to stand right there at the doors when we have indoor worship and just swarm any newcomer that comes in. It always throws new people off when we do this, but I tell you what, it works. There is something infectious about a church that is just glad to see you when you walk in. People often report that at two places, at gyms and at churches, uh, people will drive up into the parking lot and be unsure what the people there will think of them and sometimes drive away. Can you imagine somebody going on a diet, going to the gym, pulling up and saying, oh man, that's fit people there. All right, those people are in shape. This place isn't for, what am I thinking? And then in fear, pulling back out of their parking spot and leaving the gym. People do that. I have a friend who runs a gym and she tells me that. It's one of the challenges of running one. Same thing often happens at churches, did you know? They will... People will pull up, they will sit in the parking lot, and they will think, can I really do this? Right? These are, these are probably good people. What if they're mean? What if they don't welcome me in? I'm about to find out if I'm welcomed into this church. This is the kind of fear people can have in that parking lot right there. And when they walk in those doors and there is a warm welcome waiting for them, that is hospitality in the church. We can do the same thing in our homes. We can do the same thing at work. The common principle is showing a warm welcome to people who are not in your circle, but are outside of it. Now, I asked the question earlier, how can we break down some of these social barriers that are in society now? How can we get the gospel through to many who have been trained to believe and taught to believe that we are hateful and bigoted people? Many people have preconceptions about us now and a mistrust of us. And as we begin to unfold the word of God and some of its teachings are very palatable to the modern ear and sound very nice and some of its teachings do not sound very nice to the modern ear, how can we get over that barrier of mistrust that we have in many cases? One way we can do it is to show a warm welcome to strangers. Imagine someone who has been taught for their whole lives that we are hateful and bigoted And imagine this person is very different from us, doesn't look anything like any of us, and they walk through our doors. 
when we give them a warm welcome, as we have done for years now, how surprising would that be to some of them? How much would that say to them, hey, these people aren't what you think? Hey, what you've been told about these people are not true. That surprise comes when we give people a warm welcome in obedience to Jesus' commands to show hospitality. This is actually a part of how I became serious about my own faith in college. I'll tell you the story. Uh, I went off to college. I was raised in a United Methodist Church that was conservative for United Methodist churches, but probably moderate on the whole spectrum. Uh, I went off to college not sure if I believed that the words of the Bible were God's words and were true. Uh, not sure about some of its teachings. It said some things that I wasn't so sure about. Uh, but I knew that I wanted to follow Jesus, and I knew I wanted to grow in my faith. <clears throat> and so I began seeking friends who were strong Christians who could help me grow. I didn't want to fall away when I was in college. And the pickle I was in was that there were some strong Christians in the small college I went to, but they were all like the coolest homecoming king guys in the whole school. Most of them were homecoming kings in their high school, and some of them were a few years older than me. And as you might imagine, I was not that sort of guy in high school or in college. And so I took one look at the strongest Christians on our campus and said, well, those guys aren't gonna to wanna to hang out with me, so who else can I find that might encourage my faith that I can spend time with? Didn't even bother with the cool Christian guys. And then I bumped into one of them, his name was AJ. They, they lived, uh, a few of them lived down the hall and they always had guys over in their room and he invited me to hang out in their room. And their room was like, that was where the cool people hung out. Uh, and he invited me to hang out in their room and I thought, we were in front of some other people, and I thought, man, that is so nice of him to pretend like he wants to hang out with me in front of these people so I don't get embarrassed. Like, that's so kind of him. Because I knew these guys would never want to hang out with somebody like me. And so, of course, I didn't take him. I mean, I, I you know, responded nicely, but didn't take him up. I'd walk by their room on the way to class and on the way from class. And uh, they would see me, and they'd always have guys hanging out in the room, like, Dave, get in here. And I'd be like, oh, I got to go to class or whatever, and would make excuses. And after the fifth or sixth time, it started dawning on me that maybe these guys actually did want me to spend time with them. So I went in, I hung out with them, and the welcome they gave me was so warm. And there was no sense of people like us don't hang out with people like you. There was no sense of, hey, we're in different groups here at the school. These guys just love Jesus, and they wanted to study the Word together, and they wanted to hang out together. So I think we watched a movie the first time, and I remember being so blown away at the warmth and the welcome that they gave me when they were the top of the upper echelon at school cool guys, and I was not. Now, a few months later, we had become friends. Years down the road, both of these guys would become mentors to me and teach me a lot about the faith. But when eventually uh, they started saying things that I didn't agree with at the time, like, well, yeah, we believe every book, every word in this book is true and is the word of God. It had a lot more weight because of the welcome that they showed me. And I'm, you know, I got all this cognitive dissonance in my head, so confusing, because I'm like, wait a minute, I thought people that believed in the Bible were supposed to be mean-spirited. These guys are nice. Like, what's going on? Like, it challenged everything that I believed about Bible-believing Christians. When they started saying things like, yeah, we believe that God's plan for sex and marriage is one man, one woman, lifetime, like just like the Bible says. It's not popular today, but that's what we believe it says, and so that's what we believe. It had so much more weight because of the welcome that they showed to me. I look back and I wonder if those guys hadn't been so welcoming to a guy who was not cool like me, 
would I have the confidence I have today? Would they have been able to influence me the way they did? Uh, and the confidence that I have that every word in this book truly is the word of God. How did God do that? Well, in my case, he did it through the warm hospitality of some Christians that loved Jesus and did not care who was cool in school and who wasn't. That's just one example of how warm hospitality can break down the social barriers and help us get the gospel to places where there are people who desperately need it. So let me give you three examples of how you can show hospitality, then I'll tell you one more story. So there are a few ways that we can all show hospitality practically in our lives. I think all of us could do at least one of these things. Some could do all three. The first one is to take a genuine interest in every stranger you come across. You come across fewer and fewer strangers as the world changes, as we go to self-checkout and pay at the pump gas and all these new technologies. You don't have to see people as much. Some of us love that, some of us don't. But the fact is you still have opportunities to go through the cashier line and you just might even talk to somebody there. Uh, you still every once in a while have a waiter at a restaurant who you get to talk to. And it can be very tempting to forget that that person is indeed a human with concerns and with family, either parents or children or something. You may only get 15 minutes or 15 seconds with this person, but you can still look them in the eye and take a genuine interest in them, even though they're a stranger, for as long as you have them in your life. You can chat it up with the person at the checkout counter. It can be difficult and awkward to do, but one of the ways, one of the easiest ways to make that conversation natural is just to have a genuine interest and concern for them. That gives to a stranger in your life, someone outside of your circle, a warm welcome into your life for just a few moments. Usually nothing comes of it, but we do get to obey Jesus' command to give a warm welcome to strangers that way. Another thing we can do is host meals in our homes and then usually you'll develop a circle of people that you typically have in your home, then look to continually expand the circle. Well, who do we often have in the house? Who do we know that we don't have over to the house? Let's bring, the, they would, that person would probably like this board game that we're playing on this night with these friends. Let's bring them in on it. Oh, I know one of our neighbors really likes grilled salmon. We're going to grill salmon. Let's bring them in on it. Continually looking to expand the circle of people that you are bringing over to your house. And when you do, have a good time with them. Make it a warm place. Make it an inviting place. And look to expand that circle as much as possible. One final way you can show hospitality, if you have a job or if you have any kind of social circles you're in, you know if your kids play sports and that gets you in a culture there, you volunteer at the library and so you know some people there. If you have kind of places you go to uh, outside of church and home, there are probably circles of friends there, right? If, you, uh, if you're at work, for instance, in the office, it's probably a group of people that go to lunch together. Maybe you're part of that group. One thing you can do is always look to the people who are not in the inner circle and find ways to bring them into the inner circle. If you're, everybody in the office is going out to lunch except for like two or three people who never go, well, they might say no. You probably will say no if you go and invite them, but it's worth it to go and seek them out and say, hey, we'd love to have you come this time. Uh, that's a way that you can welcome people into the circle, just by looking at the places you are, who's outside of the circle there, and how can I bring them into the circle? I'll give you one last story of an example of someone who showed great hospitality. I read this story a few weeks ago. There was a, uh, a man who moved from the Cayman Islands to Washington, D.C., very dark-skinned man, 
who was looking for a church, and he happened into a church in Washington, D.C. That, that was almost completely a white church. Um, so he looked and felt very out of place and, uh, you know, had a good time at the church service. Noticed that the guy behind him, who we would later learn his name was Jim, uh, just sang his heart out through all of the songs. It was kind of intrigued and wanted to meet this guy afterward. He wasn't exactly a great singer, but he was a singer, if you know what I mean. Uh, so afterwards, he meets Jim, shakes the guy's hand, and Jim invites him over to lunch at his house. I say, hey, we're having lunch at the house. You want to come? And uh, the way this man tells the story is he said, well, you know, I, being raised where I was, the first time you say no. And so I just, I said, no, thank you, though. Um, so he went home. The next week, he bumped into Jim again. I think Jim actually sought him out and said, hey, this week, can you come to the house for lunch? And so second invitation, he said, okay, yeah, sure, I'd love to come. And so he goes to Jim's house. He meets Jim's wife. He finds that Jim has six children, uh, is fostering, I think, to adopt some, some of his nieces and nephews, gives a situation that his cousins are in. Uh, a very busy man, but he took time to open up his home every Sunday after church and would tend to seek newcomers and bring them to his house for lunch. So he has a good time. He makes friends with Jim. He winds up going to that church, becoming part of that church, becoming pretty good friends with Jim as well, and noticing that Jim is constantly opening up his home, even as he and his wife are caring for six children and foster children at the same time, still making time to do that. A number of years later, uh, five, six, seven, eight years later, uh, it's time for Jim to move away. And it's a sad day for everyone because he's you know, well-loved in the church. And there's an evening prayer meeting, looks a lot like our, our evening worship services used to look. Uh, and the pastor at the prayer meeting has them stand up and brings them up and gives them like a fond farewell, you know, as we might do sometimes. And there are about 400 people at this prayer meeting. And he says, you know, would you mind, everybody, if, you're, uh, if you've ever been into Jim's house, if he's ever welcomed you into his home, would you stand up? And more than 350 people in the room stood up. Over the years this guy had been to the church, this was a thousand-person church, and a majority of these people had been into his house. Many new people gave testimony of how scared they were to come into a church the first time. Uh, but there was Jim to welcome them. This is the difference that one or two people who choose to be kind of the welcoming, the informal welcoming committee at the church and take people out to lunch and open up their homes to new people, the difference that they can make in the church. And it is a profound one. Our society will probably get more and more fragmented as time goes on. There will be more and more barriers between us and those around us. What we must remember is that there was a greater barrier between the Lord and us. The dark barrier of our sin committed against him and the righteous wrath he had stored up for us. This is a barrier that it was not possible for us to overcome. But despite this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He overcame that barrier to welcome us back into his family and his home. As a mirror of that, we are commanded to reach out to those who are outside of our social circles and give them a warm welcome inside. Let's pray together.